children ages three years old through fifth grade get to be dismissed to junior church. Thank you for investing in our young people. It's good to see them excited to go as well. I'm sure uh, it isn't just my life that has uh, gotten busier during uh, Christmas. I'm sure your life has been uh, action-packed as well. It seems that the pace can get cranked up a notch as we are busy uh, buying gifts, uh, seeing family, maybe attending parties, decorating the house. We've had the privilege this year of decorating our Christmas tree three times. Yes, our cat this year has decided that that tree was his favorite. If you would like to know how to hang your Christmas tree from an eye hook from the ceiling so that it can never be knocked over again, please see Ben Cucci, who specializes in such home repairs. So we have a Christmas tree hanging from the ceiling with a five-gallon Home Depot bucket underneath it. The cat, try your best. Okay. Actually, he's home now, so we will see if we get a fourth time. We kind of reached that point where it was like, you know, three times decorating it, how about we just chuck the thing outside and just call it a year? You know what I'm saying? Anyways, the frantic pace that we can all have, uh, I think, is actually matched by Mark. If you've been tracking with us through the Gospel of Mark, you know that Mark is on a mission. He has a quick tempo. And you feel that pace as he uses his favorite word 41 times. His favorite word is immediately. He is like one of those friends that you have that say, hurry up, come on, let's go. And you get out to the car and you're like, where are we going? And he's like, come on, let's go, we got to get there. You have those people that keep that family moving and on schedule, right? Mark doesn't have time for sentimental details. Here we are at Christmas and guess what? Mark doesn't even have time to share of the birth of Christ. Mark introduces to us Christ at year 30. He even skips the teachings of Jesus. We don't have the Sermon on the Mount. We don't have the Olivet Discourse. Mark is action-packed. What could make this season any more action-packed? Star Wars fans? Another blockbuster right? Okay. Action-packed movies. Star Wars, The Last Jedi, thanks to Pastor Pat, who spoiled it on Facebook. No, just kidding. Uh, yeah, Connor's looking at him. It was a, it was a great thing. But uh, you know from last week that my family and I, for the first time, have started our Star Wars watching, okay? We, we've never seen them before. We just started. We made it through The Last Jedi, and uh, or I'm sorry, not The Last Jedi. We made it through the return of it. Such a newbie. Okay, sorry guys. Return of the Jedi. But even though Mark is action-packed, I don't think Mark has ever seen a lot of blockbuster movies. I just don't. You go, obviously, Josh, okay. But when you watch blockbuster movies, the ones that make a lot of money, it has to be those, you know exactly what happens. It gets worse and worse and worse. And you get to that spot where the hero looks like he's gone. Jack Sparrow, excuse me, Captain Jack Sparrow, is there in the gallows. You have Luke Skywalker on a plank about to be thrown into the great pit of Carcoon. Did I get that right? Close enough, close enough. And you think, that's it. 
But then somehow, some way, the hero turns the table. He finds a weakness in the defense. He gets out of the handcuffs. He gets out of the gallows. He uses the force. He jumps on the villain, destroys it, and then make another movie. If you don't want to make a lot of money, have the hero die in the first movie. Jesus has been the hero throughout Mark's gospel. How do you think it's going to end? Is this what you would expect? Turn with me to Mark chapter 15, beginning in verse 16. If you're new to our faith family, we are glad you're here. We welcome you. We expect you to be able to follow along and that everything's intelligible to you. So there's a pew Bible in front of you. It's page 852 if you're not used to using a Bible. But uh, we want to make sure that what we're saying is based on God's Word. It'll help keep your interest uh, as we walk through this passage as well. So page 852, chapter 15, the chapters are the big numbers, the verses are the small numbers, and that is the basics of how to read your Bible. So let's hear God's Word beginning in verse 16. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him, and they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews. They were striking his head with a reed, and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him, and when they had mocked him, They stripped him of the purple cloak and put his clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. They offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was a third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Is that how you think it would end? Many of us are familiar with this passage, and so it loses some of its surprise to us. We send out every week on Wednesday an email called The Weekly Gathered. It is our attempt at giving you a heads up on what's coming on the Sunday morning sermon. I can't think of a better way to prepare your heart for Sunday morning than reading the passage throughout the week, familiarizing yourself with it. In fact, the best preparation for Sunday morning is preparing to teach it. It, it, that, That is just the joy of it. We hope you use that tool. But as you might be familiar with this passage, we've read it probably a hundred times. You know what stops me for the very first time? I almost missed it. Verse 24. And they crucified him. That's it, Mark? That's all you have to say? 
I had to reread this account several times going, where's the crucifixion? Like, is he, is, is he crucified yet or is he not? I was expecting more detail of the brutality of the crucifixion, and yet Mark couldn't have been any shorter, and they crucified him. It's the exact opposite of what we see in the movies, like the Passion of the Christ, who spend two hours on the gore and the blood and the whipping, and they leave out and they don't explain why Jesus died. Jesus did die on a cross, but so did two others that day. Physical anguish does not make Jesus' story unique. Crucifixion is always gruesome, but rarely is it meaningful. So we've been asking ourselves throughout Mark, what are the three questions we've been asking ourselves all the way through this? Who is Jesus? Why did he come? Why does it matter? And notice that Mark does not direct our attention to the pain of the cross, but to the shame of the cross. Why does that matter? Why does that matter for you this morning? Two reasons. Because it reveals our heart, and because it reveals Jesus' heart. Because it reveals our heart, and because it reveals Jesus' heart. In verses 16 through 32, we have a carnival of shame. Go to a carnival, there's all these different games you can play, and here there are four groups of people that all take their shot at making sport and fun of Jesus. We have soldiers in verses 18 through 20 who want to gather a battalion. Why do they come together? Only to have their fun kneeling before a half-naked, half-dead man, dripping with blood, kneeling in homage saying, Hail, King of the Jews. We don't just have soldiers who are supposed to be there. We also have those that pass by. Look at verse 29. This is the next phrase that really stuck out to me. And those who pass by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. Jesus is no longer a public hero. I read through Mark again this week, and in chapter 11, the crowds are out there saying, Hosanna, King of David, and laying down their jackets. No longer the people's hero. He is an outcast. At this point in verse 29, he has been stripped of all of his clothes. He is a public spectacle of open shame, hanging naked on a cross. Let's not be naive about this. The Bible says, those that passed by derided him. These are not the junior high words that brought you shame. If you're a junior high student, we love you being here, and there probably isn't a more awkward, embarrassing, shameful time of life. I remember people making fun of me because my pants were too short. <laughs> people making fun of me, you dork. Loser. I do it the right way. <laughs> no. <laughs> ah, loser. 
yeah, uh, so it just, it continues, okay? Uh, but when it says they derided him, they would be using our swear words today. I'm not going to encourage you to think about what those are, but that's the kind of language they're using. And they walk by wagging their heads, <laughs> just kind of snickering, like, you know, and that expression just has that air of superiority, like, you got what you had coming to you, man. You know, you're the one that said you're going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. <laughs> yep, you deserve this. Then we have the chief priest who asked for a sign, one more sign, because they are blind to the sign of love. Look at verse 32. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. You hear that superiority there again, don't you? Mockery always comes with that air of superiority. All these religious leaders mock Jesus because Christ isn't doing what they think that they would have done. Right? That's usually where mocking comes from. You know, if, if we were this Messiah, we would come down and we would save ourselves from Rome. And they are too proud to be saved by a weak warrior. They are too proud to be saved by a killed king. They are too proud to be saved by a suffering servant. And they say, come down. You know, Satan told Christ, jump. Peter told Christ, don't go. And here the high priest say, come down. And Christ says, no. Are you surprised at the end of verse 32? It says, and those who were crucified with him also reviled him. What remarkable rejection to have yourself crucified between two known criminals. It's like getting your mugshot for your Christmas card between a rapist and a murderer. And here these guys who are barely able to gasp for breath themselves. Did you know that crucifixion didn't kill you by just blood loss? Getting a nail through your hands, your feet isn't a major artery. And so you would die through asphyxiation. You could be on the cross for three days. What finally would kill you is you couldn't push yourself up one last time to get yourself a breath. And here are these men who are gasping for their own breath, who can find the gumption, who have enough hatred and hostility to be able to find one more breath to curse the Messiah. And those that were with them, known criminals, still find a way of making Jesus an outcast. I think at this point, we all have to look and ask ourselves, why such hatred? Why such mockery from everyone? Was there ever a man treated so much less than he deserved? Jesus never cheated anyone in this life. What, what has he done to deserve this? He's never done anything out of pride or lust or envy. What has he done? He only casted out demons. He only lifted up women. He only gave sight to the blind. He only gave new flesh to lepers. He only raised dead people back to life. 
did he do to deserve this? It might not be so much what he has done, but what he has said. Look and see what they are mocking him over. Are they mocking him for his Sermon on the Mount? Are they mocking him for his great teaching? No, they are mocking him for his incredible claims. Hail, King of the Jews. You said you would destroy the temple and make a new one. You said that you are the Savior. Save yourself. They are mocking him for his claims of being king, claims of being the savior, and claims of replacing the temple. Oh, so you're the way to God now? The magnitude of Jesus' claims bring out the hostility in every one of our hearts this morning. We can't stand those claims of Christ because it forces us to an all or nothing kind of decision. You see, if you're new to church and you think that Christ is a good teacher, then people could say, you know, well, maybe you are, maybe you're not. If you look at what Christ taught, you say, maybe it's true, maybe it's not. But when you hear, I am the king, when you hear, I am the savior, when you hear, I am the son of God, it is all or nothing. You can't just like Jesus, you have to worship him. You say, Josh, you don't understand, I I don't really despise Jesus, I, I don't mock Jesus, I don't hate him. I I just don't center my life around them. Then you really don't know who he is or what he has said. Even if you're here this morning as a good religious person, if you don't center your life around him and worship him for who he is, you are still clenching your teeth saying, no one has the right to tell me how to live. The mocking soldiers crowd, the criminals, the high priests all reveal our heart. And listen to how one great hymn writer said it. How deep the Father's love for us captures it well in this third verse. Behold the man upon a cross. My sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. If we have not surrendered to Christ and his lordship, we find that our voices are in the crowd as well. Christmas Eve, we're going to have a reader's theater. Something very powerful about that, people saying words together. But Martha challenged us, what about on Easter, having a reader's theater in which we ask the audience at that one right time for us all to say, crucify him. It reveals our heart. But it also reveals Christ's heart. Many of us know the gospel story. The gospel story is that by Christ not saving himself, he actually shows himself to be king. And what kind of king he is. If you're new to reading the Bible, Christ isn't dying by being murdered. The Bible tells us that he laid down his own life. No one took it from him that he might raise it back up again. So he is dying on the cross for our sins. He is dying so that we might live. 
So as we read this account, we are not to read the humiliation and the shame and the mocking of Christ to feel pity, to say, oh, no one deserves to be treated that bad. If Mark wanted to play on our emotions, he could have gone into all the sensational details of what happens through crucifixion. But what do we have? And they crucified him. See, only physical reference to what Christ went through, which means that when you watch those movies, they are majoring and missing the point. The cross is multi-dimensional. Why the cross? Last week, we saw through Barabbas that Christ went to the cross as our substitute. We're all criminals like Barabbas, and we've all been set free because Christ died in our place. Today, we're going to look at a different facet of the cross, one that often gets missed, is that Christ is taking our shame by becoming a curse for us. You know, the story of the Bible is that God created man and woman, and they were naked, and they were unashamed. If you're new, you, you can't even fathom that. What would that be like? But within a couple short chapters in Genesis chapter 3, man and woman both rebelled against God, and now they were naked and ashamed, and they tried to cover themselves. And the rest of our lives, we all feel, in different associations, naked, unclean, dirty, with a stain that won't go away. And we all try to cover ourselves with self-beautification, whether it's through good looks, smarts, skills, career, that right family. But Christ became naked and became ashamed and became a curse so that we could be clothed in His righteousness. So that He could look at us and not be ashamed to call himself our God. How does he do that? I would like for you to turn with me to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians 3. I know that's not necessarily the easiest book to find, but you want to go to your right. So we are in Mark. You're going to pass Luke and John. Then we get into the letters that Paul wrote. They're organized by largest to smallest. That's how the Bible's written. All of the Pauline letters, largest to smallest. And then all of the other epistles written by other apostles, largest to smallest. Then it ends with Revelation. So we are in Galatians. It's after 2 Corinthians, which is a pretty large book. Galatians chapter 3, the youth group has gone through it, so I'm sure you're going to be used to this verse. Galatians 3.13 The cross is Christ taking on our shame by becoming a curse for us. Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. Christ redeemed us. You hear that buying word. From the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Jesus lived in a shame culture. If you want to know what a shame culture is, 
can talk to Jessie Reed. She just got back from Africa, living in a shame culture. You can talk to Rachel Planchet of what it means to live in a shame culture. She lived in Tanzania for a year. But for those of us that are new to that, a shame culture, the most important thing you could have is your name. You live and you die on your name. A good name is what you live on. And so to have your name destroyed, to have your reputation destroyed is the ultimate thing. And so crucifixion was the worst of all executions because you didn't just die and get buried and everybody forget about you. You hung on a cross for days, an open spectacle, your name out there, your family name out there. Just think, those of you that are younger siblings that have gone in the path of your older siblings to the same school they went to, and you try to, what, disassociate yourself from them if they have a bad name, right? It's very minor compared to the Jewish shame culture. And so Christ, His name is out there hanging on a cross. And so Christ says, or the Bible says here that He was cursed. But not just cursed, it says here that He actually became the curse. Look with me at verse 13 again. It doesn't say Christ was cursed said Christ became a curse. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming, not was, a, not was cursed, but becoming a curse. We have a hard time with that word curse, don't we? I know I've made enough movie comments today, but we only think about cursing like voodoo. You know, it's like you got cursed. I think of Pirates of the Caribbean, the curse of the Black Pearl. You know, you, you have that ship and just all these bad things are going to happen to you. That's what curse typically means, and so we don't have a way of grasping it, so let's do the opposite. What's the opposite of cursing? Blessing. So our million-dollar question is, what does a Jewish person think is a blessing? We're going to figure out what cursing means and understand what blessing means. What is a blessing for a Jewish person? You've heard this read in church millions of times. Go back to Numbers chapter 6. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. I promise this is the last one you have to turn to. We do want to get used to using our Bibles. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. What did a Jewish person consider a blessing? We read this in church, usually at the end of our service. We will read it again this morning. I pray that it will take on new meaning that we won't forget. Numbers chapter 6, verses 24 through 27. We'll start in verse 22 and on our Pastor Jeff. <laughs> you say a verse, you go back to. That's our, that's our tradition here. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. How does a Jewish person understand blessing? The Lord make his face to shine upon you. And be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Blessing in the Bible is always indicative of an intimate relationship. Things are going well. Cursing is always indicative that a relationship has been lost. Here's what we need to know. This is the million dollar point. Please pay attention if you've drifted off. The level of pain in the loss of a relationship depends upon the level of the relationship. 
the level of pain that you go through when you lose a relationship is related to how much that relationship meant to you. So when an acquaintance says to you, I hate you, it doesn't hurt as badly as when a friend says, I hate you. And that doesn't hurt as badly as when a parent says, I hate you. And that doesn't hurt as badly as when a spouse says, I hate you. But we don't know the level of intimacy between the father and the son. No sin. Eternally God. Three in one. Loving and enjoying each other beyond creation was ever started. And now consider Numbers chapter 6 as if it was a curse. May the Lord curse you and abandon you. May the Lord keep you in darkness. And give you only judgment. May the Lord turn his back upon you and remove his peace from you forever. And then we think about Mark chapter 15 and we know that the Father utterly forsook the Son. The Father. imputes on him every sin of every one of us. The Bible tells us that God is too holy to even look at sin, and so Christ cries from the cross, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Hebrews pictures it as Christ being rejected and being killed outside the camp. If you were in Israel and you lived back then, you wanted to live in the camp. That's where God's presence dwelt. And when you lived without the camp, it meant that you were beyond the reach of God's blessing. And so the scapegoat was put where? Outside the camp. And where did Christ go and suffer? Inside Jerusalem? No, the place of a skull, Golgotha, outside the camp. He was rejected by his followers. Judas, his closest friend, Peter, the people of Israel, the high priest, and by the Father. How did Christ deal with such shame? familiar passage. Let me read it to you because I promise you not to turn anymore. I forgot about this one, (laughs) but I won't lie. You can just hear it. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, here's the phrase, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, 
and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Here is Jesus on the last lap of his earthly race, and there are only two hurdles remaining, the cross and the shame. And it says that he was motivated by the joy that was set before him. And then it says that he despised the shame. Isn't that an interesting word, despise the shame? Would you choose that word? Despise, typically think hate or dislike. He despised, he hated, he disliked the shame. That's not the only range of meaning in our English language or the Greek. It also means to consider something as unworthy of notice or consideration. For you to look down on something as negligible and worthless. So he looked upon his shame, the mockery, the reviling, and he considered it of no account. Wouldn't you like that? Wouldn't you love to connect Jesus' last day to change your every day? Students with a testimony at the public school. We praise God for you. Not only do you get mocked and reviled by friends and associates and peers, but you even have science teachers that come and sit down beside you and join just to deride you some more. And you could be tempted to disassociate with God and to find your associates somewhere else so you can distance yourself from the shame. But Romans says... I am not ashamed of the gospel. Moms, the world looks at you raising your children, says that you are unvaluable, you're not contributing, your kids look the same, your house is always messy. Are things ever going to change? You ever feel that way? Dishes are still in the sink. And you say, what am I doing this for? Those of us that are going to family relative gatherings in which there will be shame because of our allegiance to Christ that we bow our heads and we say a meal before Christmas. Maybe you're one of those weird family that reads all of Luke 2 before you go for the carnage of ripping open packages. Delaying the instant gratification to think about Christ, the greatest gift of Christmas, your true treasure. The shame that will never surrender its power over your life unless you fight for joy. Jesus doesn't minimize the shame or the hurt. But he does tell you that the shame of worldly rejection is temporary. Temporary things only have a little bit of value. My family and I got away this week and Hudson wanted to play this arcade game. I didn't even know how to play the arcade game. It was a game called Stacker. I read the directions. I get paid to read. Could not figure out what in the world the game was going to do. And being someone who wants to win, I'm like, we're going to YouTube this bad boy. <laughs> Type in Stacker, how to beat the arcade game. 20 billion YouTube videos come up. Stacker is also stacked against you. It's rigged. You can't win the iPad prize unless it has enough money in it that it has doubled the value of the iPad. So the only thing that you can win are these worthless, temporary, rubber band bracelets. 
50 cents. Feeling generous. Put a $5 bill into the coin thing. Got all these quarters. Hudson, we're not playing that. That's worthless. Let's go play air hockey. <laughs> you know, I mean, but yet we, you know, Dad, can I still play stacker? I want to win that rubber band. He already has six of them on his arm that he made. <laughs> Despising. These things are of little value. Jesus always interpreted his hardship in light of the end of the story. And the end of the story is that we will one day be without shame. Colossians 2.15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them. This is not the end of the story. You who have been wronged, you that have suffered injustice, you that have been despised by the world, don't look at it as God's punishment. Believer, you are not on probation. Christ became the curse. There is no condemnation in Christ. He comes, joy to the world, he comes to make his blessings known as far as the curse is found. The curse that began in Genesis chapter 3, Christ became the curse to overwhelm the world with joy because he outdid it, he undid it, so that you could be a blessing so that he could call you his sons and daughters. So the next time you are tempted to be ashamed of your Savior because of the world's rejection, look at your shame and say, you can't distract me. I won't even look at you. You are almost finished, same. I have a joy set before me. And there is a judge, and he will judge justly. So may Christ be your treasure this Christmas season as you see his blood as your ransom and your defense. Numbers chapter 6. May the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. May the Lord bless you because Christ became a curse for you. Let's stand and sing and worship our most precious gift, Christ.